Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Paul says, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or the other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working. But all of them, in every one, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing spirits, which we would call the discerning of spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. And all these are the work of one and the same Spirit and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Now the NIV has taken some liberties and made some assumptions in this passage because if we could read Greek, there would be some things revealed to us that are not revealed in the English renderings and the translations. If we could read the Greek, it would say something to this effect. Now concerning spiritual and that's all it would say. And so it would be, leave you dangling and saying, spiritual, spiritual what? Spiritual things, spiritual people, spiritual gifts, spiritual what? So the translators made an assumption that what he was talking about was now concerning spiritual gifts. But really with that, that word now concerning spiritual, it is not conclusive that he was talking about gifts. But it seems to be uh, reasonable because... You continue to read this chapter, and he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. So it just kind of makes sense, right? Now concerning spiritual gifts, and then he talks about it. But it has been suggested by some of our scholars, and, and more and more scholars as time goes on, that he's not really talking about spiritual gifts. I think I can make the case very clear that really what Paul was inferring is now concerning spiritual people. Because even though he begins to talk about the gifts, he's talking about the gifts as used by people. And uh, whenever we get down to the 37th verse, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted of the Spirit. So this, this essence of spiritual people in the church, is that, that question is being answered. And their use of the gifts and what that means to the church. So in every issue Paul has dealt with concerning the Corinthians, there has been this sub-issue, this side issue of the question of who's really the spiritual person? Who's the most spiritual 
speaker that we have. Well, it must be Paul. It must be Apollos. It must be Cephas. Or who's the most spiritual person, those who eat meat or those who don't eat meat? Uh, and these, the, the side issue has always been there in all these other issues. Now he addresses it directly. And he talks about what really defines a spiritual person and what spiritual people can truly expect to do and experience in and as a part of the church. And some of these people seemed to think that there were certain spiritual gifts that they prized more highly than the others and believed that those who operated in those gifts seemed to be the more spiritual people. Now, in my experience as a man, as a, an individual growing up in nothing but Pentecostal churches all my life, starting off gnawing on the back of the pew in First Assembly of God Church when I was just three years old, and spending all my life in, in Pentecostal churches, I can speak with some uh, experience and authority about this matter. I do know over those years I have discovered that those who seem to be the most vocal in the use of the spiritual gifts in the church seem to be the most spiritual people. Those who give the most message in tongues or interpretations, they become the pillars of the church. People look at them as the spiritual gurus. And really, honestly, you cannot make that distinction. Because sometimes those messages come forward are not always from God. And you have to have a nose to be able to smell that out. You can't just be gullible enough to think every time somebody gives a message in tongue, this must be a message from heaven, and they must be the most spiritual person in this whole place. I've seen abuses of those gifts throughout my ministry. And you've got to be very discerning. One of the gifts of the Spirit is the discerning of spirits. It's very handy to have that so you don't get impressed by those who are the most vocal among us. Now, there is a uniqueness to the Christian experience that separates it from the pagan religion that these Corinthian people formerly came from. And Paul says in that third verse, as I reread this, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or the other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is the Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And the reason Paul makes this observation is because these people were having a difficult time separating their pagan religion from their current religion. They weren't making a clean distinction between them. There were some pagan influences they were bringing over into Christianity. The similarities between the two religions was that both of them lent themselves to ecstatic experiences. Within the pagan religion, they could have ecstatic experiences in whatever spirit that they were connecting with. Now, this is an interesting side note. I have a, a friend, his degree is in church history. So he wrote a book about Azusa Street. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you know what the significance of Azusa Street is? Many of you do. For those of you who could not raise your hand on that, I will share that with you, the experience, the significance of Azusa Street. And that is in Los Angeles. And whenever this new wave of the move of the Holy Spirit began to break out in the late 1800s, early 1900s, 
it, Azusa Street became a hot spot of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we recognize today as modern-day Pentecostalism and in some form and fashion uh, the charismatic movement as well. Charles Seymour was a minister who, who really began to promote the baptism of the Holy Spirit and teach on that. He ended up in California and in a little church out there on Azusa Street and there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that could be compared to what happened on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts in the second chapter. And it was quite different from our modern Pentecostal services today. Charles Seymour was not known as being a, a great orator, not to our uh, understanding, uh, not the information we have. But he would sit on a chair at a little table with his head covered and just pray. And then the Holy Spirit began to move and gifts of the Holy Spirit being manifested in those services. And people becoming, being, started coming from all around just to see what was going on at Azusa Street. From there, there were other hot spots that began to develop as they went to Azusa Street and then they started spreading out across the United States and even around the world. Coming up from Louisiana, there were some people who were formerly involved in the voodoo culture that was down in Louisiana. And they migrated out and found themselves in the Azusa Street Revival. And voodoo was a religion that relied a lot on ecstatic experiences as well. So these people coming out of voodoo moved out there, and there was this ecstatic experience and, and free-for-all, and they began to bring some of the practices from their voodoo religion. So sadly enough, unfortunately, some of the other people began to pick up the practices of the former voodoo worshipers who were bringing their voodoo styles of worship, and some of them had to do with twisting and contorting and screaming and, and hollering and some of the things that j just kind of goes along with what we think is old-time Pentecost. <laughs> but it was actually some of the influence coming from voodooism being carried over into the Pentecostalism. So when we think of what is Pentecostal worship, you really can't define it. The only thing you can say about Pentecostal worship is it responds to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Corinthians were associated with pagan worship, so they came into the pagan church. And Paul says, now let me make a distinction between your pagan worship and this worship. Back when you were in pagan worship, and people were maybe even speaking in tongues in pagan worship, which it would be a, a false experience, but you got speaking in tongues here, you got speaking in tongues over here, you've got wild worship in pagan, you've got wild worship in this church. And he says, you've got to make a difference here. And some of you people are not making the distinction he said, let me tell you something. You're telling me, and I'm just kind of filling in the blanks for you, that over in your pagan worship, you heard people that were praising God and magnifying him. But he said, you never heard one of those pagans magnifying Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, oftentimes in the pagan worship, they would curse Jesus. He was the opposite of their religion. So that's the reason he says, no one who calls Jesus Christ Lord can call him cursed. And nobody can call Jesus Christ Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the distinction between the pagan religion and the Christian religion was Jesus. Jesus was never honored in the other religion. And you cannot call Jesus Christ Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now you could probably mouth the words, but most would not even care to do that. 
He's the total antithesis to the religion. But it's only by the Holy Spirit you're truly born again. You cannot get to heaven by having a pagan religion experience. And if you don't have an experience through the Holy Spirit to bring you to Jesus Christ, you don't have Jesus Christ. You cannot be born into Jesus without the element of the Holy Spirit to bring you there. So you just can't take it upon yourself to call yourself a Christian, associate with the church, and go home and say, I must be on my way to heaven. If you haven't had the encounter with the Holy Spirit who births you into the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes the difference between all other religions and Christianity. That's the test that he gave them to discern the difference between the two. And we should obviously keep that test foremost in our minds. Then he goes to the distribution of the gifts to the spiritual people. And he says there are different kinds of gifts. We all know that. And I'm not going to reread it, but I'm going to remind you of that passage where he lists the nine what we call the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. Just for your information, if you want a way of remembering these gifts, they're divided into three categories. Three of these gifts have to do with the mind, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and the discerning of spirits. Three of these gifts have to do with action, uh, the gifts of healing, uh, the working of miracles, and uh, the gift of faith, power mm -hmm. gifts. And three of these gifts have to do with the mouth, tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. So you've got the uh, mind gifts, the power gifts, the vocal gifts. Or if you want to give it a further definition, you've got those gifts which enable you to know and which able you, enable you to do and which enable you to speak. And all of these, Paul says, are the same spirit. So he's giving some very important information to these former pagan worshipers who's wondering, is there a different spirit for every gift? No, it's the same spirit, the same Lord. We have that commonality no matter what your gift is. We're still operating by the Holy Spirit. So he says, the Holy Spirit distributes them as he desires. Now it suggests that verse 7 is the thesis statement that outlines this entire chapter for us because the seventh verse says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So it's, the suggestion is that verses 8 and 10 develop that phrase, to each one is given, and verses 12 through 26 develop that phrase for the common good. So you've got this, that's the way it outlines the rest of this chapter. Now let's look at the first division, to each one is given. There's a gift for everybody. The spiritual gifts are for the purpose of being used and not hoarded and not wasted. Secondly, the spiritual gifts are always to be used for the common good. Anybody who is trying to uh, be used by the Holy Spirit or, or uh, function in the power of the Holy Spirit, if, they're not, if, if, if what they're doing is not being seen as for the common good of the church, they're out of order. It's not, the Holy Spirit doesn't disrupt. And it doesn't just do this that one person might be magnified. It is for 
Everybody. It's for the common good. Everybody ought to be able to get something out of this, or it's not in proper order. Now, while the Assemblies of God uh, holds to the belief that tongues is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because of three accounts that we have in the book of Acts where people were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it records very definitely that as a result of that, they spoke in tongues. It was on the day of Pentecost. It was in the house of Cornelius. And then it was uh, the disciples of John where Paul said, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? We have not heard there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And he prayed for them and they began to speak in tongues. Three definite times whenever they spoke in tongues as a result of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, that is not typically viewed as being the same in function as the gift of tongues. Simply because somebody may be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and during that time when they baptized in the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in this, in this uh, language that they did not understand, yet they do not feel confident enough to be able to bring a message in tongues to the body. I don't really say that they can't, but I say that they're not particularly yielded to be used that way because how many of you know some people are bold and some people are shy? You know, I've got some people that would be glad to come on the platform right now and I'll give them the mic and they'll share a testimony or do what I've asked them to do and some that would uh, uh, just as soon walk out the door if I invited them up here. Don't you put me on that platform. It's not that they can't talk. It's just that they don't particularly feel like they want to talk in front of everybody. So even though we recognize this and preach that this is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we realize that not everybody is going to be willing to step out and give a message in tongues. So that may not be the gift that they allow themselves to be used in in public worship. Now, as the charismatic movement swept through the United States a few years back, a few decades they begin to take a different approach on that. They didn't believe that the speaking in tongues was initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They believed that any gift you got was evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I've, I've met people out of the charismatic movement that said, uh, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember the, the very moment he baptized me in the Holy Spirit, but I never spoke in tongues. And most of them said, I never spoke in tongues till later. And oftentimes they did speak in tongues, but it was, a, it was a, a, a later time other than that initial experience that they identified. They said, the, the gift I was given was, and they would identify the gift of healing or the gift of whatever. I'm not going to argue that point. It's not worth the time investing to try and debate who's right or wrong. All I care about is people who are yielded to the Holy Spirit, who want to be used by the Holy Spirit, I, I don't want to be contentious about that debate. I care about the working of miracles. I care about the healing of the sick. I care about souls being one to the Lord. I care about people being discipled. I don't care theologically how they describe how they got there. I just care that they want to be used to, by the Holy Spirit and yielded to the Holy Spirit. It's still God's will and desire and design that the church function by the gifted contribution of each member. It's God's will and design that you have a gift. Did you hear me? And that you operate in that gift in concert with the rest of the believers so that the church can function as one body. Now let's talk about the body. We don't really get it until we understand the significance of the body. 
If you review what Paul has taught in this letter, do you sudden, does it suddenly dawn on you how many times Paul has talked about the body so far? He's made repeated references to the body, but it just kind of seemed to, to slip our attention until he comes down to this point and begins to really give this in-depth teaching about the body. He teaches that the bodies, throughout his, the rest of his, his letter, he, he taught us that the believer's body belongs to Christ. He taught that if you share that body intimately, physically, with another person like a man uh, who has a prostitute, you have united yourself in body, in the flesh with her, and therefore you are incompatible with being associated with Jesus because your body belongs to Christ. And you become one with an ungodly person. That's what he's talking about, the significance of the body. Paul instructed the Corinthians, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He taught them, use your body to glorify the Lord. He taught them in the 11th chapter, now this loaf represents the body of Christ. But in a sense, he said, and you are the body of Christ. You are that loaf. So he's made double references to the body being the body of Christ and the body being the believers all united together. And then he comes down here and says, now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story about the body. The church is the body of Christ. That's not just a, an analogy. That is a fact. It, he didn't say the church is like a body. That would have been an analogy. He said, you are the body of Christ. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But the question would be, how many of you here today believe yourself to be a born-again believer of Jesus Christ? How many of you count yourself to be a Christian? That number of people here, here, here today say, I am a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You all together with every other Christian attending church today, or if they happen not to be in church, or around the world, are the body of Christ. And everyone has a different function. And I'm going to read another somewhat lengthy section to introduce us to the concept of his teaching on the body. He says, just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink, so that even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then he goes through some sort of a, a rather repetitious uh, example that he gives he, one would have sufficed but he, he used two or three to reinforce the same thing he said now that the foot should say because I'm not the hand I do not belong to the body it would not for that reason stop being part of the body and then he uses another example which drives the same point if the ear should say because I'm not the eye I don't belong to the body it would not for that reason stop being part of the body and then, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts 
in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Underscore that. Just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but there's just one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, once again, we're getting a little repetitious, but he's driving this home again and again and again. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, and he ends up with this final thought on the body, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And I'm sure most of you can relate to this, that all you have to do has, is have a severe injury, and your whole body knows it. When I was doing carpentry work, I had carried a 28-ounce hammer, and I hit the wrong nail. Hit the thumbnail. It bled underneath the thumbnail, and the more it bled, the more pressure built up. I don't know why my entire body was throbbing and aching. I just hit it there. Everything was hurting. My head hurt. My feet hurt. My, my other hand hurt. Everything was hurting. Until finally I, I decided what I need to do is I need to drill a hole and relieve the pressure, and I drilled a hole. You don't want to hear that. The nail fell off. It started growing back. I had about three-quarters of my nail back. went down to Honduras. Hit it again. Same thumb. By now, I know, I know the routine. I whipped out the knife, and I'm sitting there drilling. This other guy's, oh, don't. I said, don't watch. There's going to be rivers. But I know if I didn't do that, there was going to be tremendous pain all over. And Paul is trying to tell us that may not be the normal reaction in a church, but it's what we're supposed to make happen. Unfortunately, in the body of Christ, one can hurt and nobody cares. But Paul said what's supposed to happen because you're a body is if one hurts, everybody is supposed to hurt with them. Everybody is supposed to care. That's what it means to be a part of the body. We need to be more sympathetic to those around us, more caring and more concerning. Truth number one concerning the teaching on the body. Each member of the body is equally part of the body. So just because the foot says, I'm not the eye, I must not be important. Nobody loves me. I don't feel like I'm really part of the body. And Paul says, that's nonsense. The foot is just as much a part of the body as the eye is. Yes, but I don't, I don't get used the same way. The eye is so important. And I just, if I could just be the eye, he said, all the members are just as much a part of the body. Now, there might be some of you sitting here today that maybe you're concerned about how much am I plugged into my church? How much do I matter to my church? 
I go and come and few people talk to me. I don't do many things around here. I don't feel very important. First of all, if you are a born-again believer, you are a part of the body of Christ. Period. You're a part of it. You are important. And just because you say, well, I don't feel like I'm important because you've got people that are doing important things there that I'm not a part of that. I don't feel like that. You're part of the body. And whatever function you are fulfilling, and maybe you're not sure what function you're fulfilling because you're thinking in terms of what do I do at church. And that kind of seems to be the whole litmus test about if I'm really part of the body, I ought to be doing something at church. Well, I would want you to do that because I'm the pastor and we need help. But nevertheless, there's some function that you can fulfill in the body of Christ that doesn't just show up in what you do at church. You're a part of the body of Christ that is, exists in this world every day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. And you're important in what God has gifted you with. Now the question is, are you using what God has gifted you with? Truth number two. All the parts of the body are necessary to the completion and the perfect function of the body. Now, I suppose anatomically we could argue that point. Uh, there are certain things we could probably lop off. And uh, I mean, has anybody ever had their appendix out? Has your, has your life been significantly changed just because you lost your appendix? So, you know, we could probably argue this from a a medical standpoint, biological standpoint, but that's, Paul's not trying to make that kind of a statement. He's speaking to real people in a church who are wondering, where do I fit in in the body of Christ? What's my purpose in the body of Christ? Does God really love me? Does it matter? If I were gone tomorrow from this world, would it matter? Well, God has a purpose. God has a plan for you. Are you fulfilling that plan? All of the parts of the body are necessary. You're a part of the body, and God has something that he wants you to do. He wants the Holy Spirit to work through you. Are you allowing him to do that? Are you making yourself available? Truth number three, diversity is vital to the proper function of the body. When trouble arises in the church, it's always traceable to the dysfunction of the body. The reason we're having problems is because the body's not working like God designed it to. First of all, we have dysfunction like disrespect. Paul points out and says there might be people in the church that think others are less important and treat them with less, less respect. He used this as an example. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And Paul is translating this to the church and saying, you people cannot be pointing to somebody else and say, ah, they're unimportant to the kingdom. They're not unimportant to God. All are important. Envy and discontent, that's dysfunction in the body. Whenever one, the foot says, I sure wish I was the eye. Why didn't God make me the eye? I wanted to be the eye. I ended up being the foot. And so there's this discontent and this envy. One sees the function of another as more glamorous. And that's what they want to do. Let me say this, functioning out of one's calling and purpose and ability is not for the common good. It fulfills my desire, but it's not for the common good. There are certain things I know I can't do. 
just because I want to do them doesn't mean I ought to do them. When I was about 20, 21 years old, I wanted to sing Southern gospel music with a professional group so bad. Oh, I had the fever. I subscribed to this little magazine called The Singing News, and every time it'd come in, I'd just devour that until the next publication came out. Look at every group out there, see where they were going to be singing. Uh, look through the one ad, see if anybody's looking for any, any talent or anything. And I'd, Finally, I found this little, little group out of Nashville that was looking for a lead singer. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to apply. And I, I shot them off a letter and said, I noticed your ad looking for a lead singer. I would like to apply for the job. I got a call. I'm heading off to Nashville to try out for a professional singing group. And a little bit nervous. You know, that's, that's a little step up from what I had ever done. Just before I left, the night before I left, my dad said, son, looks like you need a haircut. You don't understand what that meant in our house. He appointed mom the barber. My mom was the furthest thing from a barber you can imagine. I was just getting to the point where I had outgrown her last hack job. And I was going to get down the road somewhere and get me a nice professional haircut. I said, Dad, I'll get it on the... Oh, no, Mom will cut your hair for you. So the way she did it was I combed my hair from over to the side... And for some reason, she felt like she had to take this loop out right here every time. So when it combed over, it just, it all fit together. So she sat down and she took that famous loop out of my hair. And I got up, I looked at it in the mirror, and I thought, my, I might as well call and cancel. If I don't look like a hick from the hills. And I showed up down there and I called them and said, I'm in town. They said, we'll send the drummer out to meet you at the truck stop. And he came out, and he saw me, and he, he called Jimmy, the manager, and said, well, did you meet him? Yeah, I said, Jimmy, Jimmy, he's got a haircut just like you. Because <laughs> Jimmy had been to a barber and got a bad haircut. <laughs> Things were not going well for me, so I followed the group around for a few days. After the group would sing, People from the congregation would come up and get on the guitar, get on the bass, get on the piano, get on the mics, and they would all sing. And just have. I said, there is more talent down here than you can shake a stick at. What am I doing here? There were people that were driving cabs that could be professional musicians, but they couldn't make their break into the industry. There were people waiting and bussing tables down that, that had more talent than I had. And I thought, Lord, what am I doing here? Finally... After a few days, when they thought I had kind of calmed down a little bit, they said, well, let's, it's, it's time. Let's, let's try you out. And we got up, and, and I sang, and I, I just fell to pieces. And they said, well, I, I, think, I think we could work with you a little bit and make something out of it, but we need somebody that's ready to go, and you're just not ready to go. And they sent me home, sent me packing. And I came home totally rejected, dejected, Lord, what am I going to do now? I wanted to sing. But you see, that was for me. That wasn't for the common good. And of course, you know the direction my life has taken since that time. I would like to think that somehow I've had more impact on this world 
following where God has led me than I would have running around singing a southern gospel song to people. But this jealousy, I, I don't like what my position is. I want to that position. It's not always where God always, always gives us what we want. He knows better than I do what he's gifted me in, what I can do and what I should be doing. And another dysfunction in the body is discord. The body parts refusing to work together. If I had to walk from here to there and my brain wasn't in control and telling my feet and my arms and everything, every muscle I have to get me from here to there, I wouldn't be able to make it. It's got to be somebody in, in, in the central command here that helps my body function because the legs don't cooperate together and, and, and my balance and all these things don't come together, I'm not going to make that drip, trip. I just, it just won't happen. So there's got to be this coordination in, in the church, in the body of Christ. There's got to be this coordination. All of us have to be working together. We can't be doing our own thing. We're a part of the body. And we're a part of trying to all accomplish the same thing. We have to be pulling in the same direction, going in the same direction, thinking the same way, doing the same thing, trying to get there. But everybody doing their special part to make that happen. Not every person attending a church is a part of the body of Christ. You have to be born into the body of Christ. You can come sit in our church, but as I said before, it's being born in by the Holy Spirit, coming to that real encounter with Jesus Christ where you've surrendered your life to him baptized by the Spirit into the body. Now, I'm not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit where the gifts are imparted. I'm talking about being baptized in the body of Jesus Christ. You have, you have made your declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the people that are part of the body of Christ. And then how does this apply to the church? And this, this is my uh, final lap. So I'm very close to ending up here. Just hang with me. Now, you are the body of Christ, Paul says. And each one of you is part of it. So at this point, would you cooperate with me? I want everybody to say, I am part of the body of Christ. I am part of the body of Christ. And Paul makes another list. Don't think that the first list of nine gifts was the only gifts. He makes another list. And this time he includes some other things. And he said, God has placed in the church, or the body, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. And after that, he doesn't use fourth, fifth, and sixth. He said, then miracles, and then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. And he then asks these rhetorical questions, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And then he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, in, in our body, there are different systems that are operating all the time. Your digestive system, your respiratory system, there's systems going on all the time. And main control central control is operating and bringing all these systems together. And there is a priority that goes on in the body. If you want to check out this, this uh, uh, truth, go home and gorge yourself. And then get up and do some work. What's got priority in your body at that point? Your heart has to have the attention. 
And your body's going to do everything to keep our heart going and going to ignore your digestive system. If you don't give time to let the heart rest and let the digestive system do what it's going to do, you know how hard it is for your food to get digested if you won't stop and let it do its thing. So there's, a, there's an order. There's a priority. The body says the heart's number one. If you don't stop and rest it, other things are not going to get done efficiently. And in the body of Christ, there are certain priorities. First of all, apostles. I mean, they're the ones that took the teachings from Jesus and helped form the church. And it's where we understood more about what Jesus taught through the apostles. And then after the apostles, you've got prophets, teachers. And then after that, people operating in the various gifts that he just gave a sampling of them. This was not a complete list. This was not all in some pecking order. But he said at the top here, you've got certain things that the, the church would not op function very well if all it had was everybody had a gift of healing, but there wasn't any teachers there wasn't any apostles that led the church. It would be, that would be uh, the lesser priority, and the church would not function properly. So there's got to be something in that spiritual leadership. So somebody running around with, let's say, the gift of healing or the, the, the gift of discernment and says, but why can't I preach? Why can't I teach? Why can't I be up there in front? What's God gifted you for? Unfortunately, we don't always discern our gifts accurately. Sometimes we think we can do things that we don't do very well. We just want to do them. And so function in the gift that God has given us for the greater good of all. Not everybody is expected to be a prophet or a teacher. Not everybody is expected to work miracles. Not everyone is expected to give guidance because that's one of the gifts. Each gift is to complete the body in their own way as it pleases God. Not as it pleases me and not as it pleases you, as it pleases God. Every person is baptized who has been baptized in the body of Christ has a purpose in the body. So once again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I go to that, back to that question. Have you been baptized in the body of Jesus Christ? In other words, are you genuinely saved? Do you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior? If you're so, you've been baptized in the body by the Spirit of God. You have a purpose. You have a function. There's something God wants you to do and needs you to do so that the body can be perfect. It can be whole. And the question is, do you know what your gift is? Are you being used in your gift? Do you understand your purpose? So who are the real spiritual people? Going back to the original question. They're wondering, who's really the most spiritual people? You're all spiritual people if you're born into the body of Christ. But the real spiritual people are the ones who understand that they are to contribute to the body with their gift. I don't want anybody here to leave this church frustrated so I don't have a gift. Yes, you do. That's the point, the revelation I want to make to you. You do. You, God has never allowed the Spirit to birth one person into the body of Christ and the Spirit come away and say, I can't think of a gift I can give them. It just doesn't work that way. The Spirit gifts every single person who was born into the body of Christ. The question is, are you using it? That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ.
many years ago, before I even entered the ministry, there were a couple of songs that stood out to me that were talking about this whole issue of being used by God. One of them is an old song that some of you old-timers will remember from back in those days. Jesus, use me, and oh, Lord, don't refuse me. Remember that one? Surely there's a work that I can do. Remember that? Then there was another one that, to be used of God, to sing, speak, to pray, to be used of God, to show someone the way. So we had these songs that were talking about being used of God and expressing a longing, Jesus, use me, use me. I don't wonder if there's a driving desire today to be used of God. He's gifted you. The body needs you. The body does not function properly until you are fulfilling your part. We're limping along till everybody is contributing what God has gifted them to do. Bow your heads.